So I was looking at my notes this morning. Um, we, we planned this sermon series uh, last summer, and I was double-checking just to, just to see exactly when we sort of mapped this out. This message we planned to teach on this Sunday, uh, on July 1st of last year. So last year, July 1st is when I sort of mapped out uh, this entire series. And I, I, I want to point out as we begin this morning, um, I really needed this text this week. And you might, even as we're reading it, you might read it and go, man, I, I don't totally get all this stuff. We're going to walk through it here together in a second. But I wanted to start this morning by pointing out the fact that God, God is a good provider. And, and he is aware of our lives and he sees us. It was so interesting this week. And the, it was a tough week uh, for me. And it was very interesting in my preparation and study to see that God planned for this text to fall on this Sunday uh, all the way back in July. There's something really meaningful. I think sometimes in the midst of the stuff that happens in our lives, we lose sight of the fact that God knows more than we do. That he sees what's coming around the corner, that his vision and his understanding and his knowledge far surpasses ours. I am confident that God, uh, that his spirit working in conjunction with his word will move in you today, but I wanted you to know as we begin that this text is, I, I think, very relevant and applicable. And for me personally, has been a great... Um, it's been a great challenge and a blessing as I've sort of walked through it this week. You know, it, it is, uh, it's got a lot of different stuff in it. And as we're reading it, the only way really to understand what's happening in this is to get the context. And that's true of all of the scriptures. You never want to just grab a verse or a section of verses and, and sort of look at them alone. You always want to see them in the greater context in which they are found. So if you're just joining us today and you haven't been with us in this entire series or even in the last couple of weeks, uh, this section might at first be a little disorienting. The, the writer here in in chapter 12 is continuing his overarching theme, which is continuance. That because of who God is and because of the way he has created us, that we are called to persevere, to endure, and to continue even when things are hard. He's made the, the case for us earlier that we aren't of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and whose souls are preserved. We are of the company of those heroes listed in Hebrews chapter 11 that were faithful to God, were obedient to his call. And then as we get into chapter 12, he says, so run the race that's set before you, right? Don't let yourself get discouraged. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Study him. Remove any sort of entanglement. And then in the text we were in last week, he says, and don't be discouraged when you're disciplined by God. He says, don't be discouraged, but remember this promise, this exhortation, this encouragement from God that says, when I discipline you, that's proof that you're my sons and daughters. When I discipline you, I'm, I'm treating you as my children. And if you didn't experience discipline, that would be proof that you're not my kids. But the fact that I'm, that I'm steering your life, that I'm polishing you, that I'm refining you, is evidence of my care and concern for you. So don't feel beat up. Don't feel angry. Don't feel sorry for yourself. But when the discipline of God recognizes it, when the discipline of God comes, recognize it for what it is. It is God trying to stir us up towards, as we saw in the text last week, towards holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right? That God is disciplining us for our good to promote holiness and peace. So then as we get into this last section, it's really interesting because the writer, inspired by the Spirit, has just made the case that God is working on our behalf, that he's working in our life to create peace and holiness in us. And then in this last section, he comes along and says, so if God's doing this, you should join him. Right? If God is already working on your behalf for your good and disciplining and steering your life, then why not, rather than fighting that or rather than ignoring it or rather than feeling sorry about it, why not instead work in alignment with God's purposes? 
It's interesting, uh, over the last little bit, my wife has been sort of working with my family to try and create more physical fitness, right, in our family. Uh, so we've sort of weeded out a lot of the junky snacks we used to have. We've replaced them with these, uh, you know, they make these little rice cracker things now. They're essentially just sawdust that's glued together. They don't taste like anything, but they're really good for you. So if you eat those, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know, but they're better than cookies, apparently. But she's, uh, when, we, when she makes dinner, you know, it's, she's always like, there's asparagus or there's squash, zucchini, there's always something really healthy there, and she's kind of looking at all of us, myself included, and going, we all need to be eating more healthy, we need to be exercising, we put this plan in place for our kids recently where we said, you can't play video games unless you're doing some sort of physical activity, right, not just going to be couch potatoes, you're not just going to sit around, and so everybody's kind of been trying to get more fit, but I realized that Like, while in theory, I was aligned with her, in theory, I was going, yeah, we all want to be healthier. Like, I hadn't really sort of joined in the process. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was still playing a lot of video games, is basically what I'm saying. And uh, so this last week, I, I realized, like, I believe in what she's trying to do in my life, and I believe in what she's trying to do in the lives of my family, and I want to join her in that process. I don't, want, I don't expect that transformation will happen physically simply by her efforts on my behalf. I want to join in on that, and that's what the writer to the Hebrews is encouraging us. If you can wrap your brain around the fact that the God of the universe cares enough about you to be working in your life to promote peace and righteousness and holiness, then instead of fighting against that, why don't you join in with him? So, uh, so this last week, my son Will and I, he's, he's in fifth grade, we decided uh, that a couple of times, well, three times a week, we're gonna start climbing those stairs at Hilltop Park or Hillcrest, whatever, uh, Hillcrest Park, I don't know, it's, we just call it Mount Doom in my family, right? So uh, we decided, so we walk down Brea and we climb the stairs and then we climb back down the stairs and then we hike back up Brea to our house. And uh, I'll tell you, I felt really good when we set off on that walk the first day. Some of you honked at me, thanks for that. I know I look awesome in shorts, so I appreciate you acknowledging that also. Um, But as we're walking, I'm like, yeah, I'm in alignment with my wife's overarching purposes. Like, here we go. But if you've climbed those stairs, you know there's a point where you get about halfway up and you're like, what am I doing on these stairs, right? Like your knees kind of go, I'm not climbing anymore. Like, I don't care what the rest of you is going to do, but we're thinking about rolling down the stairs, right? (laughs) Like, there's just this point halfway up where it's like, I just want to quit. This is too hard. There's too much resistance, it's too painful. Like, I, I came out here for the right reason, but along the way I got discouraged, and you want to stop doing it, and somewhere you got to find this sort of the internal fortitude to strive on, to press on, to get to the top of the stupid park, and then climb back down and whatever, right? No offense to those of you who may work for Parks and Recreation. Uh, The writer here is acknowledging the fact that as we try and join in with God's purposes, his peaceful and righteous purposes for us, that it's not going to be easy, but he calls us none the same to this pursuit of God's desires in us. He says here in verses 12 and following, he says, therefore, and that therefore is meant to point back to the discipline of God, disciplining us for our peace, for our righteousness, for our holiness, for our good. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. There are a bunch of action words in this section, right? 
He says, lift and strengthen and make straight paths, right? Strive for peace. See to it. See to it, he says. Multiple categories. See to it that no one fails to obtain this grace. See to it that no root of bitterness raises up. See to it. There's all this action. And it's interesting in the Christian community sometimes because we know we're saved by grace, we go no action is required, right? It's not by works of righteousness which I have done. It's not by my striving. It's not by my lifting or my strengthening or my effort that I'm saved. And then sometimes what happens is we disconnect from the fact that there is a call to action, That we don't do these things in order to earn God's favor. We don't do these things in order to achieve for ourselves a place in eternity. We don't do them so that we can be adopted into God's family. We do them because we have been adopted into his family. That our lifting and our strengthening and our striving and our making straight paths, our seeing to it that there is no root of bitterness and these other things, all of those actions are actions that we should absolutely endeavor into, not to earn favor with God, but because in his grace he has given us his favor. Does that make sense? But there is a call to action. This section is full of action words, and it's important for us to look at them. This idea of uh, lifting your, your weak knees and strengthening your feeble arms, or I might have got that backwards, right? Lift your drooping hands and strengthening your weak knees. He's been using a racing metaphor, run the race, and the picture here is of a racer who kind of hits that wall. If you're a runner or a marathon runner, they'll talk about hitting a wall where you just feel like you can't go on. I, I felt that on the stairs of Mount Doom last week a couple of times, Right? where your hands just feel heavy and your knees feel like they don't want to go on, it's this sense of, spiritually speaking, it's this feeling of despair, despondency, of weariness and tiredness and brokenness where you just feel like, I can't take another step. And the writer here is looking at us and saying, in those moments where you feel like you want to quit, where you feel like your hands are drooping and your knees are weak, lift yourself up, strengthen yourself because you're working in alignment with God's purposes for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The writer is saying, push on, strive on, lift up your, your, your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Don't give up, don't despair. It's interesting too, this entire text, by the way, is absolutely packed with Old Testament references. So the writer to the Hebrews, whoever that is, and we don't know the author specifically, whoever the writer is, he's using reference after reference after reference. And in some ways what that's showing is the way that the Old Testament scriptures just kind of flow out of the guts of this man or woman who loves Jesus, right? The writer is speaking all these truths out of the Old Testament that the original audience would have recognized. This one in particular comes from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35 verse 3 says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. How do we lift up our hands? How do we strengthen our knees? By remembering who our God is. Don't be discouraged. Don't be full of despair. 
Not only does he say that, look at verse 13. It says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. There's a call for us to do something personally, but then there's also an indication that that personal move will have an effect on those around us. This is a reference to Proverbs chapter four. Proverbs four, 23 through 26 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk away from you. Let your eyes look directly forward. Let your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet and then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. He says, make a straight path. Make a straight path. Clear out any obstruction. Clear out any hurdle. Anything that would get between you and the goal, which is the glory of God. The goal, which is your peace and righteousness and holiness. In your alignment with God, don't let anything get in your way. And when you make a straight path, that which is disjointed or that which is lame, that which is broken, will see it and be healed. You make this straight path and you become a witness, a testimony to those who are disjointed, to those who are broken, that they might see it and be healed. Hebrews chapter 12, it says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, further damaged, but healed. It says, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, this is precisely the thing that God is striving for in you with his discipline. Peace with everyone, not just peace inside this community, not just peace inside this building, not just peace in your family, but a broad peace that comes from the peace of God manifesting itself in you. Peace and holiness. It was interesting this week, one of the reasons why this text was so meaningful to me this week, we, it was a tough week around here. I don't know how connected you've been with the news, but we, um, as a church, many years ago, 10 years ago, we entered into a partnership with a local charitable organization called Mercy House, and they run a, a homeless shelter at the, uh, the armory in downtown Fullerton. And periodically, about once a month, the armory is full because there's actually National Guardsmen that are in there. And uh, about 150 or 200 homeless people from our community then have no place to sleep, no place to lay their heads. They're, they're displaced. And so uh, uh, 10 years ago, Mercy House came to us and said, hey, we've got these homeless folks that normally have a spot but don't have a spot for these short windows of time. It's like twice a year. And would you have any floor space we could put them in? And we went, floor space? We got floor space. We got all kinds of floor space. Bring them. Let's go. And so uh, twice a year uh, for a couple of days, we, we've been creating, I mean, it's, they're not great beds, but it's just space for people to sleep in our gymnasium, right? And uh, everything with that ministry has been great for a long time. And then this last week, we had a, a tragic thing happen. There was a, a gentleman who, not a gentleman, but a, a predator who was on his way, likely on his way to sleep in our gym. And he stopped before he got here and he broke into somebody's house and he threatened their family. And it's just an awful, terrible thing. But as a result, our neighborhood, all of our neighbors, people in the city around us, people that live in the homes around this area, some of you sitting right here, all of a sudden we're like, what's going on? Like, You're bringing all these people into our city and this has to stop. And so there's lots of frustration, a lot of confusion, a lot of disinformation. But in order to try and really love, because here's the key, we absolutely want to be loving those without homes. We want to be loving the homeless and caring for them but not any more than we care about loving for those with homes, right? Our goal as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is to love all of his creation, all men and women, everybody, whether they're homeowners or homeless and everything in between. And so when we started to see our neighbors, these people right here in our own city that we are trying to love and trying to care for, trying to point toward the Lord Jesus Christ, frustrated, 
we called, a, we called a, a town hall meeting on Thursday just to get some clarity, you know, and it was rough. It was really rough because our neighbors are afraid and they're frustrated and many of them are angry. And so we, uh, we had this meeting and I, I got the privilege of sitting in the front uh, for three hours and having people shout ugly stuff at me. And that's not, that was my favorite day this week, right? That was, not, that was not great. But you know, it was an opportunity for us to look into the faces of our neighbors who are afraid our neighbors who are frustrated, our neighbors who are angry, those that we're trying to love as much as we're trying to love the homeless and say we care about you too. But in those moments where we feel this pressure, I'm reminded of a text that says strive for peace with everyone. We don't ignore anybody. We want to be striving for peace and holiness in every case because without those things, no one will see the Lord. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. There's a call here for us to strive for peace. I'm also reminded, and there's a reference here to Psalm 34, 14 that says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What we're trying to do, and the writer to the Hebrews has said this again and again, don't miss out on the grace of God. He wants to let you enter into his rest. Don't miss it like our forefathers did. But there's a call for us in aligning with God's purposes to be looking out for others that they also know the grace of God, that they see the grace of God is available to them and that they see the grace of God is available to everyone. So he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. There's a reference here to Deuteronomy 29, 18 where it says, beware Lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Be careful that no root of bitterness springs up. Be careful. See to it that everyone obtains the grace of God. See to it that there is no root of bitterness. In our, uh, in our teaching team meeting this week, somebody said, you know, roots don't spring up. That's not something they do. Right? A root is below the surface. The only time a root springs up is when it's lacking nourishment, when it needs water, and then it sort of bursts out of the ground. When we see these roots of bitterness spring up in our communities, when we see them spring up in our families, when we spring, see them spring up in our church, when we see a root of bitterness springs up, it's because there is some sort of nourishment that is lacking. And many times it's the grace of God that's been failed to be attained. Many times it's the love and the generosity and the kindness and the peace of God. And these folks who can otherwise be a root of bitterness just need some love and they need grace and peace. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up. And he says this also. Back to Hebrews chapter 12. He says, sorry, I'm still in Deuteronomy. Hebrews 12 says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by, by it many become defiled. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. These are two separate things, by the way. We don't have any record in the text, uh, in the Bible, that, that Esau was sexually immoral, but it's saying in the same way we're pursuing peace and righteousness and holiness, we're striving for these things, sexual immorality has no place in the life of a follower of Christ. 
We have to remain sexually pure. We have to be in alignment with God's creation for gender and God's creation for marriage and God's creation for our sexuality. Those things are important. But he says we also don't want to be unholy like Esau. And what he's doing here is he's, he's giving us a, a great insight into how this pursuit actually occurs in our life. Because while we've been called to pursue all these things, straight paths, peace with all men, grace, no bitterness, right? We've been called to pursue these things. That pursuit only happens when we have the right priorities. And so here the writer mentions Esau, and for some of you, that might be a story you're immediately familiar with, but for some of you who are new, or you might be visitors, or you're just not super familiar with the Bible, the story of Esau might not mean anything to you. Well, in Genesis 25, we hear the story of these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. They were twins, but Esau was born first. And as the firstborn, I mean, we're talking about seconds or minutes apart, as the firstborn, Esau was entitled to the birthright, which is the larger portion of the inheritance, right? And one day, it says in Genesis 25, one day, uh, Jacob, the younger brother, was making some stew. He was a, a bit of a chef, I guess, and uh, he was making some stew, and Esau comes in from the field. He's been hunting. And here's what it says, Genesis 25, 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau traded his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Why did he do that? The writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says, be careful that none of you are unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. What's the warning here? Esau gave up the eternal for what was temporary. He satisfied his temporary appetite and he didn't pay attention to the greater thing that was already his. He despised his birthright in order to get some soup. You know, many of us, when we're climbing the stairs on Mount Doom, or you're trying to run the race that God has put in front of you, your hands get heavy and your knees get weak and you're tempted to quit, and you want to know why the root of bitterness sinks in or why the grace of God is not on display or why you're not striving for peace, the reasons why we quit on the pursuit is that we have the wrong priority and we start to pursue temporal things. We start to pursue the things that satisfy our own appetites. We start pursuing all kinds of things that aren't aligned with the kingdom of God. So the writer here is saying, don't make the mistake that Esau made where he was looking at the thing in front of him and he was forgetting the bigger picture. Jesus says it like this. In Matthew chapter six, verse 19, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we are tempted to give up the pursuit, when we're tempted to quit on the stairs, it's because we've set our sights on the fact that this is painful or this is hard. My knees are hurting. My hands are heavy. I don't want to climb the stairs. Chubby pastors are fine, right? People like Santa, and he's downright fat, you know? Why am I doing this? I would rather go home and feel better. I don't like the difficulty of it. And in our interactions with people, there can sometimes be a temptation. There was a temptation for me this week to go, rather than have anybody else shout at me, it would just be easier to go along with the crowd. To say, okay, we won't do anything for the poor. We won't do anything for the homeless. Or we won't care for those who are less fortunate because I just don't want to be shouted at anymore. But that isn't the right answer. That's just a temporary solution. 
to my own personal frustration and sorrow, right? There's a much bigger picture. Don't be like Esau. Don't look at the bowl of stew and exchange it for something much more beautiful and much more important. He says, continue to strive. Continue to make straight paths. You have to have the right priority. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 29, he says, no, sorry, it's not 1629. It's 1626. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? We have to have the right priorities. And our priorities, our kingdom priorities, will drive our physical pursuits. But our kingdom priorities are established or they flow out of our understanding of our position. And here's what the writer talks about next. Head back to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. He says, in the end of 16, don't be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. By the way, Esau never repented of his selfishness. He never repented of just serving his appetites. He cried because he didn't have the birthright and the blessing anymore. His crying was for what he had missed out on, not for what he had done. But that's neither here nor there. Look at verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The writer's saying, if your priorities are gonna be right, you have to remember something important, that we aren't coming to Mount Sinai. Remember our ancestors, he says. Remember our ancestors who, who would come to Mount Sinai where God's presence was and they were terrified of it. And God's presence was accompanied with fire and with gloom and with darkness and with a thunderous voice that was so loud that the people actually said, no more messages from God, please, right? That Moses himself says, I am terrified. They couldn't touch the mountain. If their animals touched the mountain inadvertently, their animals had to be killed for that. The relationship with Mount Sinai was one of terror and fear where they said, no more voice of God. He says, that's not what you've come to. You haven't come to that situation. You haven't come to Sinai. Oh, no. He says, you've come to Zion. He's contrasting Sinai with Zion. And listen to the way he describes the position we have. He says, you haven't come to those things. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. By the way, he doesn't say you will come to Mount Zion. He doesn't say when you die, You'll, you'll have the opportunity to go to Zion. He says, you've come. This is present position, right? You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in feastal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's he talking about? He's trying to help you understand your position. He's trying to help me understand my position so that my priorities will be affected and then my priorities will drive my pursuit. He says, you're not coming to Sinai where you have to cower in fear and plug your ears. You're coming to Zion the city of God. You've been invited into God's holy city. The kingdom of God is where you reside. You're citizens of that city. And what do we find there? He says, we find the assembly of the angels in feastal gathering, the celebration of the angels. He says, not only do we find that, the other thing we find is the assembly of those who are enrolled in heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about us. Those of us who are here on the earth 
but are enrolled in heaven, there is a day coming where we will be in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. This is what you've come to, a community of believers who will be together as a family forever. He says, you've come to God the judge, and that might feel like a weird placement in the midst of all this other celebration, but look for those who understand the saving work of Christ on our behalf. God the judge is not something to be terrified of. God who is holy and just and who declares us righteous through the shed blood of Christ is something to be celebrated. We come to the God who is just, and he looks at us and he sees Christ. That's who we are. That's who we've come to. Those who are enrolled in heaven the celebrating angels, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, better than any earthly city. He says you've come to those who have been perfected, the saints who have been perfected. Who's that? Well, that's that assembly. That's that great cloud of witnesses. Those who are no longer on the earth but have gone ahead in their lives testify to the value of faithfulness. This is who you've come to. And then he says, you've come to Jesus. And he uses his earthly name there, his human name. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. You see, one of the problems with Sinai, one of the reasons why Sinai was so terrifying is there was no mediator. There was no intercessor in between. That's not the mountain you and I come to. We come to Zion where Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant. We come to Christ and his blood sprinkled speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You might not know about the blood of Abel, but if you know the story of Cain and Abel, you know that God comes to Cain after Abel's death and says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What does it cry out for? It cries out for punishment, for vengeance. Not so the blood of Christ. You haven't come to Sinai, you've come to Zion. There's a juxtaposition here of the thunderous voice of God that the people said, don't speak to us anymore. And then the speaking blood of Christ. And what does the speaking blood of Christ say? It says, you are mine. I forgive you. I know you. I love you. You are my sons and daughters. Now, you haven't come to the mountain where God speaks like a trumpet and the people cower. You've come to the shed blood of Christ that speaks a better word, that speaks of your adoption, that speaks of your daughtership and your sonship. Jesus whispers to us, I love you. And it's from that position, it's from that position that we establish these eternal priorities that we don't look at the bowl of stew in front of us, that we don't look at the stairs in front of us, but we look at the glory of God and we pursue peace and righteousness, straight paths, the grace for everyone. He says, you haven't come to Sinai, you've come to Zion, and not only is Zion a place where we, we see the blood of Christ speaking over us, but it's also an unshakable kingdom. Here's what it goes on to say, look at this. It says in verse, verse 25 of Hebrews 12, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He says, look, the the people, they received all these human prophets. They had Elijah, and they had Daniel, and they had Jeremiah, and they had Isaiah, and they had Moses. And they refused him, and they were punished. They didn't enter into his rest. Now we have the sprinkled blood of Christ speaking his love over us, and there is no comparison to the kind of consequence to rejecting that voice. This isn't a human prophet. This is Jesus, an emissary from heaven, who has called us into his kingdom. And there is a terrible, terrible consequence to ignoring his voice, to ignoring his voice of grace and peace and holiness. He says, verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised, and this is a quote from Haggai, 
the book of Haggai, it says, now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'll tell you, this week was a week where I felt shook up, right? I felt unstable, I felt sad, I felt frustrated because all I want in this role is to love everybody in this city and to do it well. And there were people who I desperately want to love who right now are really frustrated with me, right? And I just felt like, what's going on here? And then I come to study a text like this and I remember that there's a lot in our world that's shaky. There's a lot of fear There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of disinformation. There's all kinds of things that are playing here. But all those things that are shaky, all those things that are man-made, all those things that are wobbly, there is a day coming when God will shake the earth one more time. And when he does, all that is unstable, all that is rooted in fear, all that is rooted in bitterness, all that is rooted in selfishness, All of that will be shaken away and what will remain is the kingdom of God. Daniel chapter two says all the kings of the earth will be shaken and their kingdoms will fall away and one kingdom will remain. And it's the kingdom that you and I are citizens of. So when I recognize my position, it allows me to make the right priority and that priority then drives my pursuit. And all of this fuels and leads me into the correct posture. The writer finishes this way in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's the end result? The end result is that we're we're pushed to our knees. We're pushed to our knees before a God in reverence and awe, in worship before a God who is a consuming fire. What does that mean? It means he's a refiner. It means he is perfecting us. He is disciplining us, but that he is also refining the entire world, that he will refine it all, that it will all be shaken to dust. And only his kingdom will remain. And when I realize that he's invited me to that kingdom, that he gives access to everyone into that kingdom, then I'm pushed to my knees in worship and reverence and awe because he's a consuming fire. That, pos- that, that position, right, pushes my posture, right? That position drives my priorities and my priorities then fuel my pursuit. My pursuit of the things that God is already doing in me that I have the opportunity to join him in. Even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when my hands feel heavy and my knees feel weak, I remember that I haven't come to Sinai and neither have you. I've come to Zion. That the blood of Jesus speaks to me and says, you're mine, I got this. And I needed that, I needed that this week. Would you pray with me? Your blood speaks a better word. It's not not like the blood of Abel that cries out for justice or vengeance, but the blood of Jesus that speaks grace and mercy and truth, peace, holiness, and love. That reminds us that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, that we are part of a company of those enrolled in heaven, a company of those who've been perfected, the company of angels in celebratory robes that we've been invited into the company of God the judge 
and Jesus, the mediator. And from that place, we can look to the eternal and not the temporary. We can see that that what we see before us is simply temporary, as it says in Corinthians, but what is unseen is eternal. And we can join you in the pursuits of peace and holiness that you have already begun in us. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.